0: Welcome back to Season 3 of the Subber Motivation Podcast. Join me, Brad, each week as my guests and I share incredible and powerful sobriety stories. We are here to show sobriety is possible, one story at a time. Let's go! In this episode, I talk to Justin about his life's journey. Starting from his childhood marked by low self-esteem and self-worth, Justin shares his deep dive into substance abuse and the toll it took on his relationships and mental health. However, the heart of the story lies in his road to recovery and self discovery, marked by his admission of his issues, seeking therapy, and finding motivation in his desired relationship with his son. Despite numerous setbacks, including multiple relapses and personal loss, Justin's journey is a powerful example of resilience and the power of acceptance and forgiveness, serving as an inspiration for others in similar situations. With over five years sober, this is Justin's story on the Sober Motivation Podcast. How's it going, everyone? Brad here. Welcome back to another incredible episode. Before we get into it, I had a thought I wanted to share with all of you. It doesn't take you a long time to get sober. It takes us a long time to decide. This is something that's been crossing my mind here or there recently, is that the act of getting sober most of us have sobered up many times countless times and it makes it interesting right because it's all about that decision to decide and i think the idea out there is that yeah you hit a big rock bottom and your life completely falls apart and that is the story for a lot of people And then there's a lot of people who may never experience a story like that or haven't yet. It may come, but it hasn't happened yet. And this whole idea is about just deciding no matter where you're at because hitting a big, massive rock bottom and your life completely falling apart does not guarantee that you're all of a sudden going to get sober. Because then what happens a lot of the time is we're left with Whatever chaos was created from our life falling apart that can make it even harder to pull ourselves out of, even though people around us might think, well, that's completely obvious that you need to change your life now because look at what just happened. I say that to say this. You need to decide. What do you want for your life? How do you want your life to look? How do you want to show up in the world? And how do you want to be remembered? Write that stuff down. And if you're currently on the fence about should I be drinking, should I not be drinking, should I get sober, should I not get sober, you need to decide because it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to get off the fence, stop playing around with the moderation stuff, and just commit to making the rest of your life the best of your life. Now let's get to the episode. I also want to give everyone a heads up that Justin does discuss some of his struggles with suicidal thoughts in this episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Sober Motivation Podcast. Today, we've got Justin with us. Justin, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, Brad. How are you doing?
0: I'm good, man. Glad we could connect and share your story.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. I know it's been a while to, to put this together, but I'm very grateful to be here to be able to share my story
0: yeah beautiful man so what was it like for you growing up
1: oh well growing up was uh it was different i was i was a pretty smart kid i was good grades but from a very young age i just had low self-esteem low self-worth and low self-confidence and i and i don't know why because i didn't have a reason to be i was athletic i had japan that loved me i had a great family you would think i i had a roof over my head food on the table like looking at it with the bird's eye view you'd be like oh this guy's got a great life and but for some reason, from a very young age, I was very self-conscious, and I started to compare myself to other people. You know, some of that probably had to do with being smaller, not hitting puberty till grade 11. That was actually tough. I'd actually get down on my knees. I'd pray to be bigger, stronger, and faster. <laughs> you know, and then, but eventually I'd start to praying to become normal, right? Because I didn't know what I was going through. I had all these feelings, all these emotions built up and I didn't understand them, right? That kind of led me to acting out, trying to be the funny man, trying to make everybody in school laugh at me because I wanted to be noticed and liked by everybody. And it's essentially because I didn't like myself. And growing up in Canada, I was a hockey player growing up, but I was cut from five of the eight rep teams that I tried out for. And it was tough because all my best friends played rep hockey and watching them come to school with their game day jerseys It was tough for me, and I harbored those feelings from 14 years old, from when I got cut my last year that I got cut in Bantam, until at 34, I just didn't let it go. But I took all those feelings, and I carried them with me through junior high, through high school, and when I got out of high school, I started to find drinking, and I found it playing junior hockey, and I ended up playing junior hockey, and I remember... Sitting in a basement suite at my teammate's house and we were having beers and now, I didn't drink much in high school. I rarely drank. It wasn't for me. thought I was an athlete. <laughs> but when I got out of high school, I had that first beer, not first beer, sorry, that but that day, for some reason, I had a beer and then I had another one. And I remember just sitting there and I'm looking at my buddy and I'm, I really want another one. And I didn't understand it, right? But I just... I remember being antsy sitting on the couch. I remember looking over that beer fridge. I remember it clear as day and I couldn't wait for him to finish his. And as soon as he finished one, I'm like, hey, do you guys want, do you want another one? Sure. Yeah, another one. Now we're looking back, man, like I realized that that was my first ever craving for alcohol that I can recall. And so I was about 19 years old at that point. And I played my junior career out, but unfortunately, I played a game where I was drunk and Playing in that league, you shouldn't be anywhere near alcohol for one. I got caught at the bar when we were in the playoffs and the coach didn't like me. I left my junior career with a stain and I left with a drinking problem. And after that, I ended up moving to Vancouver. And when I got to Vancouver, I had that bag that I was carrying, that invisible bag of low self-esteem, low self-worth and low self-love. And then I opened up that bag when it started to get heavy. And when I took that bag off and I, I opened it up, I didn't unpack any of it. I've started to put guilt, shame, anger, depression, drugs, alcohol, and eventually suicidality in that bag. And I put it on my back and I kept walking until, by the time I'm 21 years old and I'm bartending downtown Vancouver, or sorry, I was 24 years old and bartending downtown Vancouver. And when you have a drinking problem, where do you go? You go to where you get access to it. So as soon as I stopped playing hockey, I was like, you know what? And I think part of it that uh, I wanted to be a bartender because people like bartenders, right? People come, they talk to us. People like almost, well, that's what I did growing up or not growing up, but when I was 19, 20 and going out, I'm like, oh man, these guys are so cool. Everybody loves these guys. They get the girls and I'm like, I want to be a bartender. So I became a bartender and people did love us. They show you love. You help them through their issues that night or you make them happier. So you're almost like you put yourself on a pedestal. What I didn't really realize was that, then all of a sudden now I'm around it all the time now you're drinking after work or you're drinking during work. And by the time I'm 24, now I'm downtown Vancouver bartending and I'm a, I'm a straight up alcoholic, I'm drinking every single day, I hum over every day, saying I won't do it again, go to work, take it back up. I'm drinking basically two, I get home or I go out after work, nope. Sometimes by myself, just go to the nightclubs, do the strip, say hi to the people thinking that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cool. I'm just going to say hi to my buddies, right? I'm just going to do some shots with my buddies where they're working and I'm doing this strip alone. But I mean, Vancouver's, it can be a small town when it's uh, the nightlife, right? You start to meet everybody. So I think it's normal. So I'm doing this every single night and then I'm walking home and then I phone up Dial-A-Bottle where you can get alcohol delivered to your house. And so I would pick up two Pellegrinos, those cans of Pellegrinos, flavored water, whenever they are. And I would drink a whole two six with two Pellegrinos. And then I'd pass out. I'd stay up till four or five in the morning, then I'd pass out. And then I'd just be here in a vicious cycle. And then all of a sudden, one of the bartenders comes up to me one day and he says, Justin, can I ask you something? And I said, sure, man, what's up? He said, do you think you drank too much? And I did what I always did. I didn't listen to anybody. I brushed him off, but I should have listened to him because I knew he actually told me a story. He was actually an ex alcoholic and he was a bartender, but he didn't drink anymore. Right. I should have listened to him, but I didn't. And I did what I did every single night. You know, I closed up my bar in 15, 20 minutes and all the other bartenders to be like, how can you do this so quick? How can you get the bar stock clean? Your cash out done within 15 minutes. I could do it because I need to get out. I needed to get out for a power half hour. We closed it to Some of the nightclubs were open till 2 or 3 a.m. And I could do it because I had that itch. I needed a drink. I became very good at my job, which is a weird way to put it. And then I'd go out and I got drunk and then something hit me. You know, I was walking home across the Canby street bridge. I just phoned up, dial a bottle and a thought rings through my head. It says, Justin, do you drink too much? And I'm like, ah. There's no way I drink too much. I'm young. I like to have fun. I'm 24 years old. I'm in the big, beautiful city of Vancouver. I live right downtown. I'm a bartender. No way I drink too much. So I took a couple more steps and a couple more steps. And all of a sudden, the thought rings through my head again. And I said, Justin, are you an alcoholic? All of a sudden, I had a warm feeling rush up through my body. And I said this word for word. I said, there's no way I'm an alcoholic. I go to work. I pay my bills. I'm not a low life, And I'm too smart to be an alcoholic. But I knew, I know that I knew at that moment because of that warm feeling that rushed up through my body. I knew it, but I couldn't admit it because once you admit something, then, I, then you have to fix it, right? You got to admit it, then accept it, and then fix it. But I just didn't want to admit to myself. And then I said I was too smart. I was so smart, in fact, that I graduated that year from alcohol use to drug abuse. At 24 years old, It's the first time I did cocaine. And I didn't remember the night. So I called up my buddy and I'm like, Hey man, what happened last night? And he told me and I was like, okay, but no, I was against drugs. I wasn't against other people doing them cause that's their choices, but I was against me doing, it. but for some reason I did them that night. But then he says something to me that you probably shouldn't have said with the person with a self-conscious low self-conscious mindset. He said, man, you were funny last night. I was like, oh, I was funny. Well, I got alcohol for confidence. I have drugs to be funny. I got Michael's special juice from Space Jam. I went out of this, and then I'm Super Justin. But at that time, I was the only one that thought I was Super Justin. I had a nickname from one of the bartenders at the Roxy nightclub in Vancouver, which is like the most famous nightclub in and, and Van the celebrities go. It's, it was stretcher, walk-in normal, <laughs> carried out nicknames over the years. And I will forget that one. <laughs>
0: That's wild, man. That That is a lot of stuff there to unpack, man. Let's go back a little bit, if we can, to growing up, right? Because I think growing up for a lot of us, I mean, sets out how maybe our young adult life is going to play out. And if we have the support and we're connected to our emotions and we're able to share them. You brought up a lot of stuff there, man, I can relate to is, is sort of taking on that funny guy role. I was always big on even though it came with its consequences, but at least I felt accepted. That was, to me, was more important at the time on the pendulum of life to be accepted, but deal with the consequences at the same time to fit in with people. What did that do for your own self-esteem though? Because, I mean, you mentioned too, you're coming from... You come out good folks, loving folks, because I know there was a lot of problems between between me and my parents growing up because I was just acting and operating in a way that I, I was never raised like that. And I don't know if that was an experience you had, but at that point in time, like probably 14, 15, 16, there was so much friction between my parents. And I think when we're growing up, those are ideally our role models that are going to help influence us. And I just... Refused to accept any guidance from them. What was that like for you?
1: Well, my parents—they split up at eight years when I was eight years old, and I went to go live with my mom. I didn't understand it. It bothered me because I hated leaving my dad's house every second week. I would cry because I could only see him every second weekend. And me and my dad got along very well because we were sports guys. And my mom got this new guy in you know, her life, and. I remember one time at 10 years old, I'm driving with him and my stepbrother, and he looks at me and he's, Hey, would you ever fight your stepbrother? And I'm tiny, right? And he's bigger than me. And he, I was like, Why not? Right. All of a sudden, the truck veered off the road, and he's, Okay, get out. You can fight him right here. And I just looked at him, and it was the first time I felt powerless in my life, right? And I was scared, and I, I felt like a coward. Because I put my head down and I told him to take me home. And I despise this guy. Like he, he was an alcoholic. He had a drinking problem. And I, unfortunately he he's passed now and I've harbored a lot of anger towards him. But going through what I went through now, I have a little more empathy for him, but I was a little kid, right? And I know how hard it can be to regulate your emotions, especially when you don't deal with them, especially when you don't really know. What was that? That's 28 years ago. He doesn't know. People don't really talk about being an alcoholic 28 years ago. They don't really talk about asking for help 28 years ago. So I have a little bit of more empathy thinking about that, but I was a little kid. And eventually I, I couldn't handle it anymore. And I went to live with my dad and you know, my dad was a great guy. I could do any sport I wanted. He always put me in sports. Always took me to sports, but you know, I was a smart kid. And from a very young age, I wore a mask so I could hide everything from everybody. But I was actually, I got good grades, but I was actually getting suspended in school. I threw an eraser at a teacher or a principal, essentially. I pulled the grades off of our wall in grade seven. I rolled a picnic table down the hill. I was acting out like all the time, people pleasing. And I don't think that my dad knew what to do, right? Because I got good grades. The, besides the acting out, the teachers loved me. I was a nice kid too. So growing up, I didn't have that guidance or, and I've talked to my dad about this too. And discipline maybe that I should have had. And I think he was trying and I've talked to him about it because he was an army brat move growing up and he was out at 14 or 15 or something like that. And he witnessed finance fighting. His dad was an alcoholic. Growing up was, it was different, right? Because I was a cut kicker, but I was suspended, but I also had this Overwhelming hate for myself, almost that. And then one time in junior high, I was whipped so hard in PE class by a dude that I was left me bleeding and left me with a bruise and he was bigger than me. And I did nothing again. I felt powerless to do anything about it. And then that's where I started to, okay, well, if I'm so powerless, how can I get people to like me? Well, people pleaser. I'm a funny guy. I do funny things. But then all of a sudden you start to make fun of yourself, right? Just to get those laughs. And as you make fun of yourself, people start to join in. But then all of a sudden, you start to believe. And then when you have that thought, that repetitive thought, even if it's not true, while you start to turn your thought into a belief, and then that belief becomes your truth. And then that truth controls your actions, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. And then all of a sudden, you're doing whatever you can to be liked and noticed, regardless of how much pain it's bringing you.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that story with us. I didn't didn't mention that the first time around, but I think that's an important, that's a really important uh, a thing there, right? Because I hear in a lot of these stories, and people who listen to the show, that we hear in a lot of these stories, divorce and in the dynamics, parents separating and the dynamics that causes for people. And it's interesting too, right? You're keeping your grades up, but also that suspension. Man, I was I was getting suspended so early on and nobody else was. That's the wild thing is they had this in-school suspension program at this middle school. This is like grade 8 no, grade 6 through grade 8 in the US and nobody else was ever getting this in-school suspension no. and then it would graduated from there, right? Then there'd be out-of-school yeah. suspension and you'd be left wondering. I mean, I was like the victim of everything, right? I mean, I was doing stuff that obviously wasn't like appropriate. I wasn't A victim of anything but my own choices in a sense but looking back now just i can really only just shake my head but i think that for some of us that there's a lot of chaos before this is my story anyway there was a lot of chaos in my life prior to picking up drugs and alcohol and i never was in high school in high school i went to rehab when i was 17 for a year basically for the dysfunction and I was never really around the quote unquote cool kids or the drinking kids or like the smoke and weed kids, right? There was all these different cliques of, of people in the high school of, I don't know, seven, 8,000 people. And I wasn't really a part of those groups. So I never really had opportunity. I had a swig of vodka one time from my parents. They might've had two bottles, but my folks were never, I never saw them drink ever. I never even really understood what alcohol was until way later in life than I feel most people do. But so I had that vodka and I I did that. I was like, oh, this is just, this is disgusting, right? You just have that this is terrible. But I think that for some of us and for me anyway, there was a lot of chaos in my life before and the second I got introduced to drugs and alcohol, those voices in that overwhelming feeling of not being good enough. And at the time, I couldn't put a finger on it. I just knew that I just felt different, looked different, ended up in different situations, than my peers, than a majority of my peers. Of course, there were some other people getting in trouble, but out of 5,000 people in the in-school suspension, I would be the only person majority of the time. So I knew other people were not experiencing this, but it all came down to that of being low self-esteem and just wanting to get recognized somehow. And I'm like, man, when I look back on my journey, my mom was a single mom and she had twins at 16 and raised my brother and I for a lot of years by herself. And I mean, she did an incredible job. She's just wonderful. She gave us every opportunity to do well. But I now being a parent myself and I got three kids and it truly takes a village. And my wife and I, the two of us were bogged down. So I can only imagine, too, what it was like for my mom. And I struggled very early on with anxiety and a lot of different stuff. ADHD, similar to well, you mentioned in for her to look after but I just don't know that the attention was there or that I knew how to get it properly. So I just did the same sort of stuff that the track you were on. And then when I found drugs and alcohol, it wasn't immediately, but I started to find some sort of peace from myself about all of this stuff that I'm not good enough. And I started to maybe even like what you did, you find you get to be the bartender, you start connecting with other people, you feel a sense of purpose, you feel like people notice you if you're not there, or you're missing or it's a good time. And That same thing I found. I found a community of people who, like, we were all having a good time. And a lot of them moved on with their life. And then I was the one left behind, unable at the time to move on with my life from this college partying that we did. So where do you go from there? So 24, Justin, you're in Vancouver. And you're doing the bartender gig. I mean, what? Yeah, exactly. If that's what you want to be around. But what good positioning. You hear a lot of people too in the that industry, right? And I worked in restaurants for a long time and the routine was solid. It was concrete. We worked, we closed it down, and we would all go to the other place Monday night. And we'd go to this place Tuesday night. And everybody from all the restaurants mm-hmm. would end up at one place because <laughs> there was one place with longer hours. So we don't all end up <laughs> yeah. here. You yeah. know? So you know the drill. So where do you go from there though? You have this talk with yourself on the bridge there too about this is maybe where I'm at, like where do things go from there?
1: Well, you know, that, that dial up bottle or whatever I was telling you about. Well, I found out that you can not only get alcohol, but you can get drugs. So it turned into getting a bottle in half gram, right? And that half gram starts to build up, right? You start to have, you need full gram. And then all of a sudden I'm getting skinny, man. I'm losing weight. Like now I, I'm six, two thirty, 30. But back then, I was 6'3", probably 180 or 175. I don't know, 180. Because I'm eating once a day. <laughs> I'm staying up till five or six in the morning, sleep all day. I'm getting no sun. I have no vitamin D. I'm beasty as heck. I'm skinny and I'm fragile. People can see it on me. My matter everybody knew, Justin Ryan needs to get out to drink. Justin Ryan needs to do drugs, right? Everybody knew, but I showed up for work. I did my job, but I was a really good Right? So they didn't really... I think they cared, but I mean, also in a union, so they can't really do anything about it. But eventually, I ended up moving back home to Salmon Arm. I quit my job, and I ended up moving back home to Salmon Arm, where I'm from, and I'm managing at a nightclub. And I remember doing the same kind of lifestyle, and then I got into hanging out with the wrong kind of people, doing the wrong kind of things, to where I always had drugs readily available to me. So now I'm bartending working at a club and it's all around me. And I remember one time, and because I lost my license for drinking and driving, I had to get a ride home and on that ride home, one day, my buddy, we, me and him started talking about the topic of depression to where I looked at him. And I said this, you no know, depressions for the week, depression is an excuse. You got to man up, you got to go to work and you got to pay your bills. Now, I don't know why I said it back then, but I definitely know why I said it now. Because I was trying to look stronger on the outside than what I was feeling on the inside, cause I still had that feeling at less than. So, 24 years old, I have two major problems substance use and my mental health. But at 24 years old, I'm ignoring two major problems my substance use and my mental health. So, I stayed down that track for many years, moving around to bartend, to do other things, not in a good way, and just chasing money because I wear out my welcome somewhere. Okay, I'm a good bartender. Like, I can literally go to a bar. And you usually don't get tipped out your first shift, but I could pick it up so fast that at the end of the night, the bartender would be, oh, wow, okay, here you go. And then I'd, they'd just be, okay, you're good, you're hired. And then I would drink on shift, And I eventually, I started to get fired from places because I was unreliable. I was drinking on a shift, I was coming in drunk, or I was missing work, right? So finally, I hit 28 years old, and I'm back home. I ended up moving back home. And I'm like, oh man, I'm not doing well. And that was the first time that I admitted out loud that I admitted to myself that Justin, you struggle with your mental health, Justin, you have substance abuse issues, I'm like, okay, well, what do I got to do next? Well, that's something I like to call my three A's. First you admit the problem, then you accept it internally and then you ask for help. But I didn't do the acceptance part. I admitted those things, my mental health and substance use, but then ask for help. And I I would go to my counseling appointments, but I hated it. I'm like, oh, I had the wrong mindset. I'm like, oh, she's just there just because she's getting paid, which is really a cop out for me because I didn't want to be there, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, I struggle. I got to do the right thing. I'm going to get a bit of help, but then I'm missing appointments. I'm not really there. I'm not really engaged. And along this time, I, I meet a girl and we're together and we break up and we're together and we break up because of my substance use issues. She's a phenomenal woman. And then one time when we were broken up and I was on a leave of absence from work when I was working, I left the bar street, got a job at a, at a plywood plant at a mill. And they actually asked me to take a leave of absence because I couldn't keep my thoughts together. I was missing work because of drinking. They're like, Justin, go get help, man. So I'm on a leave of absence and she calls me up to say we need to talk. Okay. So she comes to Salmon and arm and she was living in Kelowna at the time. And she says, Justin, I'm pregnant. Mm. She's like, now you can be in this child's life or not, but I'm keeping it. My first thought, holy shit, this child's going to be like me. I don't want the skin, but the kid's going to be like me. I don't want him to turn out like me. Like the first thing, did you imagine you here as a parent that you're going to have a kid you don't want them to be like you. But then I was like, there's no way I'm not being in this kid's life. Like, I'm going to be in this kid's life. We get back. So I'm like, okay, let's try to work things out. And so we get back together. And all of a sudden, I get in a car accident when I was drinking and driving. And I was very fortunate because I was right. I was merging onto the highway. And I was very fortunate that nothing really bad happened. But I was like, holy cow, I got a kid on the way. I need to go to rehab. So a month later, I go to rehab and I go to all my appointments, I go to all my classes, I do the therapy, but I'm not really there. I'm in a, in a place full of 60 other guys and I make a lot of friends. And there's one thing I'll say about rehab is that being in rehab for me was easy because I wasn't the black sheep anymore. I wasn't the, the odd man out, the one that keeps messing up. It's like, I walk into that place and I'm, you get along right and you hear about their stories and you just it was nice to be there for me because i i didn't feel out of place anymore but i don't think i was taking it serious enough i was going to the gym twice a day as i was getting big i was eating like king and the first thing i said when i got out of rehab was i'm not done drinking forever Well, great i just spent 35 days away from my pregnant girlfriend my family and the first thing i said was i'm not done drinking forever Well, you can probably guess what happened. I got out of rehab, got home. Months later, have my son. We have our son. Two months later, I started hitting the bottle hard again. Six months after that, my girlfriend had to make probably the toughest decision she'll ever have to make. And she had to leave me with my kid at my lowest point. And I don't blame her. I wasn't in any shape to have a kid around. I was getting blackout drunk, not remembering things, wasn't in shape to go to work. And then she left. And after that, you think, okay, Jocelyn, you're a smart nut. But I just got worse. My suicidal thoughts started to kick in. And then one day I was drinking with my buddies, and then we go to a pub, and I'm like, I'm feeling weird. I'm feeling off. And I'm like, Mom, you need to come pick me up. So I leave. My mom picks me up. I get some more beer, and I'm living underneath her at this point. And uh, I drink the beer. I'm not feeling good. I was getting suicidal. And I just remember thinking, okay, this is the end. Next thing I know, I wake up in the morning and I pull the sheets off. There's blood in the sheets. There's a knife in my bed and my wrists were cut. I'm very fortunate that nothing happened, but I was scared and I was shocked and in awe. And I'm, what just, did that really? Cause I don't remember at all. I remember the knife and I didn't know what to do. So I didn't tell anybody. I washed the sheets. And eventually, ended up going back to work, and I had to wear those rubber bracelets that everybody wears. And I went, I would sneak it in my own bedroom. I'd get her makeup, and I'd put it on my wrist, so nobody knew because it started to scar up a bit or just scab up a bit. And like, I was super embarrassed and scared, and I just put it behind me. So that was the first time I had a scare like
0: that. When was that? How old were you? Did you say thirty-four?
1: No, I was. Round my thirties ish. Thirties. 30s.
0: So you're back at your mom's place. What's mom's view on all of this?
1: Oh, she hated it. Yeah, she didn't like it at all. But I was showing people that I was trying to get help because I would have these sober spurts, right? But then I just have these four-day benders. You know, I wasn't drinking every day like I normally did, like I was when I was in Vancouver. But is I've had a month here or three weeks here. And then I'd have one and it's, and then all of a sudden that would compile on. And then I would go with, I would out for three days, but I'd become coherent enough to somehow get more drugs, to get more alcohol. Like it was super scary. I don't remember three days going by in my life. One time I ended up in a counseling appointment, my counselor, she looked at me, she's like, Justin, and I just came off a three-day bender. She's like, you like feeling like this? Cause I'm shaky. I'm sick, I'm pasty. And I'm like, you know what, for those three days that I don't remember, at least I didn't know if I was suicidal. At least I didn't know if I was depressed. At least I didn't know if I was angry. So sometimes, you know what? I, I didn't mind feeling like that. And then I would choose using over feeling. And I chose using over feeling a lot because I just wanted to escape that invisible pain that was inside me, that was consuming my body, turning, Justin Bryan, who could be so happy to Justin Bryan, that's so full of hate and anger. And, Uncomfortable, you know, being super uncomfortable all the time, like in your own skin.
0: Yeah. When you had that counseling appointments or any counselors that you saw, or even at rehab there, did you talk about like the real stuff that was going on with you?
1: No, they asked me if I was suicidal, and I said no every single time because I was scared. Finally, when we had my kid, I was scared of him getting taken away from me, right? Because he was the one thing that brought me a little bit of solace because he was was such a cool kid, man, but I missed times with him because I was out partying or I was hungover and the thing is, I couldn't hide it either. Cause I had a blow box in my car. So if I couldn't go pick him up, my ex is like, "Well, I'm not going to bring him to you. Come on. I know you've obviously been out all night because I couldn't even start my car. And uh, yeah, I, I would lie to people because I, I was embarrassed, right? Like I saw that man up stigma, you gotta be a man. And now going through it, you realize, holy cow, this is real. This feeling is real. The want and need to escape your own body was very real. And then I started calling myself a coward. You got that internal dialogue firing up, saying other words to myself that are very nice, just nasty and not very encouraging. I bottled it up and kept it to myself for a very long time. And then finally, I ended up messing up again. And I'm like, I need to go back to rehab. So I'm back to rehab for the second. This time when I went to the rehab, I was very fortunate that I started to listen to motivational speaking. I finally started getting into the gym and I heard these speakers and they all had something in common. It was find your why. So I started to ask myself, Justin, what is your why? What is your why that's going to drive you and motivate you to get better? What is your why that's going to pick you up when you fall down? What is your why that's going to make you do the things that you don't want to do? And I started to look at that little boy again that I had. There was a time where. I wanted to end my life so he could have a better dad because I thought he deserved better than me. I actually, at one point, went into the DMV to become an organ donor so I could prepare my body to die. I got milk thistle for my liver, kidney flush, started working out, eating healthy, so I could just prepare my body to give it to somebody else. I've never been in that DMV and she's, oh, you're such a good person, right? And I just remember sitting there thinking, smiling, you have no idea why I'm doing this. And it was for me to prepare my body. To give away. And that was I remember that was the day after my dad's birthday, actually. And then I started to look at the little boy again. I'm like, man, like, I started to picture him growing up without a dad. And I started to picture him being made fun of. And it's this is what helped me is being made fun of that his dad left him. Right. And for some reason, that just helped me. And I'm like, okay, I need to go back to rehab. And this time when I went back to rehab, I went with the power of why. Instead of quitting the substance, I was like, okay, Justin why do you drink? Well, I'm depressed, Well, why are you depressed? Why do you have low self-esteem, low self-worth, and low self-confidence? Okay, well, why are you like that? It's because I didn't learn how to deal with my operating system, my mental health. And in rehab, what's pretty cool is that they don't worry about the, they don't worry about the substance. They worry about the why, right? And then in rehab, they teach you the how. But a quick story about my second time rehab, I think it was the second or first day where we were allowed to go for a walk as a group. We were allowed to leave the compound, we called it, which is really crazy because it was, rehab center was in Rutland, Kelowna, right across from a park where a lot of homeless people sleep and use, find needles in the parts. It's right across the street. But we went for a walk around this strip mall and then we happened to notice like this liquor store on the, like a hundred meters away. But it wasn't a liquor store because they're everywhere. But on a sign outside the liquor store, big sign, it says, BC wine is cheaper than therapy. I just looked at other guys, 20 other guys I'm in therapy with. Hey, I only got 20 bucks? Come on. I was like, this, this sign can't be true. But that was one of the first things I saw when I was in rehab. But you know, in rehab, they teach you the how, like journal you know, gratitude, exercise, direct correlation between your gut health, your mental health. But one of the biggest things I learned in rehab and in life coaching was the power of acceptance and forgiveness and how acceptance and forgiveness is actually for you. there's gonna be things in your life where you're gonna get hurt, things where people hurt you, you're gonna have bad experiences, there's gonna be deaths in the family, And the first thing you have to do is you have to accept it. Now that doesn't mean you have to like it, but you have to accept it and you have to accept it so that you can move on and you got to move on and then you got to forgive it. And the cool thing about forgiveness is that they told us is you don't have to let the person know. It's none of their business to know. You don't have to bring them back into into your life. They can have their life. You can have your life, but you need to forgive them for what they did. They hurt you so that you can move on stop living in your past and start creating your future. Biggest thing for me, I think, was accepting what I've done and then forgiving myself, which actually truly took me into oh, last year when I saw a counselor, or I was still seeing a counselor, to where I finally, okay, you know, I, Justin, I forgive you for what you did in your past and I accept you for who you are. So that took a very long time, but, you know, I got out of rehab again and I, I hit the ground running. I became a car salesman. <laughs> is that for some people it's not for me i can tell you that guy was so i was diagnosed with clinical depression ADHD, and anxiety but social and general anxiety so having social anxiety going to be a car salesman is probably the worst thing i could have (laughs) done and after two or three months or two months of being sober i hit the pink cloud and boom here i am drinking again and then i miss a week of works and then I don't remember what happened, but on New Year's I went out, party, did drugs, alcohol, and called my boss, told him this isn't working. And realized the next day what happened. I have no job. I have no money. I got debt and I'm an alcoholic again. A couple of days pass, I'm drinking 40s of vodka by myself. And then finally on January 4th, 2019, I wake up and I'm alone in my basement suite, super dark in there. I had tin foil and towels over the windows, blackout curtains. I don't want any light to get in, but I'm scared of the dark, I'm scared of the light. And I find myself looking at pictures of my son, his toys in the corner and his hockey stick on the ground. And I'm like, holy cow, just and you know what? You got two choices here, bud. You can continue what you're doing, which is gonna take your life, or you can ask for help. So on January 4th twenty eighteen, 2019, I, I phoned my mama. She left work. She took me to the hospital, my dad met us there. And just that day I finally told my parents out loud that, Hey, if I'm going to continue to feel the way that I am, I have a plan and that plans to end it. I finally took all that weight and lifted it off my shoulder. I sat in front of a counselor and she allowed me to go back home that day because I was living with my mom. And ever since then I haven't, I haven't touched a drop of alcohol, tobacco drugs nothing like that and started becoming the path of having a mental health advocate a coach a speaker and, but an author and it was cool on that day like that counselor she gave me her card she said, hey do you ever need anything give me a call two years later i saw her again and i had my own business card so i'm like hey you ever need anything give me a call so that that was pretty cool
0: wow dude huge congrats on that too because that's just over five years right
1: Five years, I just had my five-year celebration on uh, my five-year sobriety date. It was my birthday yesterday. I'm 239. But my five-year, I'm going to start celebrating that mark because I'm a lot younger.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's the truth, man. I'm just curious going through this, right? Because you've shared this story obviously before. But there's a lot of layers to it. I mean, a lot of different things. How do you feel going through sharing some of those dark moments that you experienced,
1: it's the one thing that helps me to do it is knowing that I can help somebody else. It, it it's tough sometimes. It was when I first became a speaker, it was hard. Like I I would almost break down, not break down, but I needed to be alone. Like after I do a speaking gig, because I I could go back there and sometimes I can go back too, but you get better at uh, not staring, but just a glance backwards. But yeah, it it can be tough. I, <laughs> I remember one thing that helped me in the beginning is when I did a speaking engagement and I came home, I had actually watched a movie, Frozen, with my kids. (laughs) It was my thing to unwind. For some reason, it was watching Frozen with my son and my daughter. One of the coolest things of when I got sober six months later, I got back together with the mother of my son and we welcomed another baby girl. And that was a, that's another story in itself how that came and the struggles we had with her, but I was able to get back together with my family and they are one of my tools I used to unwind after speaking engagement.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's incredible. I'm so interested, man, to know what changed on that day, January 4th, 2019. I mean, was there something you could put a finger on about why that was different? Why that was sort of the, the jumpstart to everything that you've built now? Well, I think...
1: It was finding my my why, my son. But just realizing that I'm better than my current situation, that I deserve more than what I'm doing to myself. That there, there is light out there. Like I have a deep seated belief in myself and everybody. Like everyone I meet, I believe in them. That they can do basically a form, let's say, of what they want to do or what they want to be. They may not match the highest level of everybody else but they can become good at something if they put their mind to it. And on that day, I just, I knew I had to be consistent. I was never consistent with my counseling appointments. I never was consistent with my medication, my coping mechanisms, my tools. So I made sure that I took my medication every day. I made sure that I went to my counseling appointments. I would go to counseling appointments once a week. I'd go to my doctor's once a month. He really helped me just seeing him, right? Journaling. I was doing gratitude. I was eating great. I was... Going to the gym, listening to motivational speaking. And I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, really it's, I wanted to be the man I knew I could be. And I heard a speaker once say, I don't want to die and meet the person that I could have been. And that really, that's true because there are many versions of you that you can build. And one could be substance use. One can be, you go to work, come home. One can be you help serve other people or one can be you turn your life around and you help others turn theirs. There's there's different versions you can be. And I was just, I was done with being that version of me. Because at that one point, when I wanted to donate my body is because I'm like, Justin, you have so much potential you're wasting it. You're wasting it. And there's people out there that wish they could go to school and don't get good grades. There's people that wish they're as athletic as you, right? And I'm like, well, I got to stop wasting what God gave me. And I think on that day, I was like, you know what? I told God, I was like, if I get through this, I'm going to do whatever I can to help other people. And that's what's helps me stay sober. One of the biggest things that helps me stay sober is that I would, yeah, I would let myself down, but I could, I would let a lot of other people down if people that I can help. Because by me staying sober and working on my mental health, people can see that there is hope, that there is a way out. But you got to just, you got to keep moving. You got to keep moving and you got to keep working on yourself. And it's not a race. It's a long distance thing. Like you can't just say, yeah, you know what? I'm done today. (laughs) Well, no, you stop and then you risk the chance of going backwards again. And it's okay to go backwards sometimes, but you want to take more steps forward than you do backwards.
0: Yeah. You want to learn from everything, right? Because even in your story there, and I mean, a lot of people's journeys and stories to put together five years. Yeah. I mean, there's everything we have to learn from, right? Every time we slip up and every time things, do, things don't work out maybe exactly the way that we envision them, we have to reflect on those situations and come up with different tools and, and really get plugged in. Um, just an incredible story, man. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And then now I know that even on this journey, there's been challenges, right? What have been a couple of challenges that you've had throughout being sober and how are you able to keep going?
1: Well, like I said, I got back together with my family after six months and in rehab, they tell you, don't make any major decisions for a year (laughs) I I understand that why now. And I got back together with my family in six months. I went back to school. I went back to work. I started volunteering. I started taking courses and I got overwhelmed so fast, but I just, I kept moving. And me and my girlfriend, we wanted another kid and we tried and Almost we had a miscarriage. And we weren't ready for it. We had one before, like when I was before my son, but we just we weren't ready. We weren't prepared for it. And after you have them, you start to realize how often, unfortunately, they occur. It's okay, we tried again and we got pregnant again. And I actually found out on my on my 37th birthday, or 36th birthday, thirty seven. It was cool. I found out I was having a daughter, and Tom Brady beat Aaron Rodgers in in the playoffs. <laughs> I'm a big Tom Brady fan. But we found out we were having a baby girl, and because we're both older, we knew there's a chance that one of a 100 chance that she would have Down syndrome. So we went and got the testing, and it came back that she had a 99.9% chance that she would have Down syndrome. So they sent us to the Vancouver Women's Hospital, and it came back that she would need heart surgery, she would need intestinal surgery, and that's when you have the option, right? And the thing with it was when babies with Down syndrome, some people, they just because of that, if they choose to terminate. So throughout that process, we were given opportunities because I think that the doctors are supposed to, right? Not because they, they're encouraging you to, but right from the beginning, we knew, no, we're keeping her. So we knew we were in for a haul, and so they started setting us up with a place at the Ronald McDonald House, and <clears throat> we would go down there, and within two days of having her, we knew she would have intestinal surgery. It's called the duodenal atresia, and then we would go home, and then in four or five months, she would have heart surgery. So when we got down there, well, Renee went down first. I kept working so I could save up some money so we could go be down there, but the Ronald McDonald House, is, it's an amazing place, and we're so fortunate to be there. But I was working like basically every single day. I was drinking black coffee all day, was barely eating healthy. And I would take melatonin as soon as I get home. And while Renee and Taylor were down at McDonald's House, I get a call. She's is like, I just went into labor. I'm like, what? And I just popped two melatonins. So I'm like, well, I could drive, but it's a five hour drive. Five and a half hour from Salmon Arm to Vancouver. I'm like, I better not. So I went to bed, got up at five or four o'clock. We'll start to fly down there. And my mind is just racing what's going to happen? I'm not there. I'm like, you tell that baby to wait for me. Well, obviously she didn't wait for me, but we get down there and they had to take her right from there to the NICU to hook her up to all these tubes. Cause she's three weeks early. She was at least five pounds, but they knew that with all her stuff going on, they had to get her hooked up. And I couldn't see her for the first two hours. And then finally it was during COVID, right? So a lot of protocols. Then finally. I got two hours later, I got to see her and you see this little girl laying in a bed with a dome hooked up to how many probes and tubes and breathing apparatus because she couldn't breathe on her own. And you're just like, oh my God. And then finally, two days later, they take her away. You, here's your baby girl. You can't touch her. You can't lift her. Well, you could touch her. You could put her hand, but you can't take her out. You can't lift her up or nothing like that. And all of a sudden, they come in there, and they have this team of six people take her out. We'll be back, and they're just like, "Holy cow!" Like it just gets a little more real at that point. Finally, after they bring her back, surgery successful, and after five days, we can finally hold her, and she's just so small; she's like the size of my forearm. And we weren't allowed to come home because she couldn't come off the of breathing. So we ended up staying at the Ronald McDonald for six months, and. While we were there, she got allergic to cow's protein milk. So she was struggling that way. She had to get uh, a pick line into her heart because her intestines were on fire. And they tried to go through her head. They tried to go through her feet. They tried to go through every single place. And they finally got one in. And then all of a sudden, it's time for heart surgery. And that's when it gets real. They take you into this room. And all of a sudden, stats start flying around. Well, there's this And you're like, holy cow. You just spent five, four months with your... Baby girl, like taking turns being in the hospital because she can't leave the hospital. Feeding her through a bag and sometimes getting to hold her. Christmas time was the first time we got to take her out of her room. was pretty cool. Then January 4th happened and it's, yeah, it was right on my sobriety day. I'm what sobriety days So that they take you in this room and give you stats. And then all of a sudden your daughter gets whisked away again. And so she had two holes in her heart and she needed a valve replaced. And so they take her away. And all of a sudden they're like, yeah, it can be scary for the first 12 hours. And so they give the heart surgery. Then we get a phone call and they're like, yeah, your daughter's okay, but she flatlined." So she actually had a lung collapse and she flatlined for two minutes that they had to give her CPR and she almost had to go on ECMO and then they brought her back now. They said, Don't come here. There's no point. There are 16 doctors in this room. Just come tomorrow. So we went the next day. And when they walked in, you look at her and she's sedated. She's on a paralytic. So she can't move because she has even more tubes connected to her, things going to her heart, and something for the blood to drain. Her chest is still open because of the swelling. They can't close it. And it was cool. You could tell that she knew you were there, but I got a flashback. Uh, when I was 20, I think 28 or 27 that my stepdad, I woke up and my mom was screaming and it was my stepdad. He was choking. So I got into a room. I picked him up and put him on the floor and I started giving him CPR. And unfortunately, he had an ear dissection and he passed away. And I'll never forget the way he looked at me, his this breath. And when I walked into that room, it just, it was a flashback to that because she couldn't move. And it was her eye. I'm just like, oh my God. And you, you see this little baby and you're just like, you're angry. You're confused. You're upset. But you want to be strong for your girlfriend. And it was tough, man. It was tough, but we got through it. And when we got home, we finally left the Ronald McDonald house. We got home, but it was, we're feeding her six, every four hours through bag, throughout the day and night, every four hours. So you're getting up, you're feeding her through a machine, you're, doing her meds at the different times and she has a breathing machine going on and I'm back at work and getting burnt out again but you, you just keep going because I heard Inky Johnson once say he said why me people say why me why me and he's like why not you what makes you immune to life that's like, oh man you know what just because I went through stuff doesn't mean stuff's not going to happen to me right now. It doesn't mean stuff's not going to happen to me again, but I brought this baby girl into the world and I'm going to help her navigate it. So going through that was tough. And, but you just learn to be resilient, right? There's resilience in you. I remember looking over one time in the hospital and my, my girlfriend, then she's my wife now, we finally got married. Looking over, she's sleeping. We're in the hospital room. There's my son on this bed beside my daughter who's hooked up to these machines. He never complained once about being there. We put him in a school. We got him playing hockey down in Vancouver, which I'm very grateful for Vancouver minor hockey. But he never complained once. And I realized how resilient people are. Here's this girl fighting for her life. Being born with Down syndrome and then surviving the egg plantation is very unlikely to seeing what she went through dealing with everything she did to my son being pulled around, thrown into a school, thrown into hockey, spending the night at his hospital, looking after his sister, us spinning there and just realizing how resilient we are. And you got to remember to borrow when you're feeling low, borrow a feeling from a feeling. Borrow that time that you were resilient, not feeling confident, borrow cool. a time where you were confident. And when things happened again, and we wanted another one after that. And that 16 weeks, we lost it. We were set 16 or 17 weeks, we lost another baby. And one week after that, I lost my grandfather, who the, the person I wanted the most to read my book. My biggest role model, I wanted him to read my book. And within a week, both of those things happened. And I found myself, I'm like, I wanted to quit. I'm like, screw this book. Screw everything else. Book's not coming out. And then I had to sit back and I talked to a buddy about it and I had to calm myself down and realize that it's it's life. And if I don't put out the book, it's doing a disservice to myself, showing my son something I don't want him to learn, that quitting is good. And it would show a disservice to other people that the book could help. And so I had to to go back to that, uh, my three A's, admit, accept, ask for help. I had to admit that as much as I was mad that we lost our kid because one of the worst parts about it was seeing your wife cry or the devastation that she would have to go through again. And because it, it, it hits women different than men. I believe, well, for me, sorry, not for every man. I can't speak for every man, but it hit me. I was angry. She was sad. And then I got sad, but I had to accept, admit that those two things happened (laughs) within a week Then I had to accept it internally. And then I asked for help. And I talked to my wife about it. I talked to my buddies about it. I didn't see a counselor or anything, but I knew a guy that went through the same thing, so I, I talked to him, and he helped me through it. So I know I had to. I've had a lot of things come up, and you get tested right out of sobriety, and just been able to stick with it. And I'm very grateful for the the support team that I have around me. And another thing that helps me is seeing these sober motivation groups that that you started, and when you posted my sobriety. Uh, five year on your page the amount of support and encouragement of people taking a second out of their day to help celebrate with me and acknowledge that man that just fires me up it just keeps me going and this is doing this stuff helps me to keep going realizing that things are going to happen in life you're not going to like them you're going to get hurt you got to keep moving
0: wow dude thank you for bringing us on that journey there What's your daughter's name, by the way? Osha. Osha. Wow, that's beautiful, man. What an incredible journey, right? Especially early on in your sobriety and everything you've been through, dude. I mean, I we've met before we've talked, but I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea, and I'm sure there's so much more. It, it almost sounds, too, you got to this spot, too, about things are just bigger than us. The story with your daughter and then the story with your book and I think once once I understood that about everything not that it makes it any easier but maybe it just makes it make a little bit more sense that there's a there's this is not all about me it's not all about everything and that's what I really struggled with early on in my life that's how I lived everything was about me poor me look at mm-hmm. me and then when I am able to step back and just say you know what like there's there's so much more going on here than just me it really seemed to take the pressure off and, and help me understand that these these situations, and that's true in life. I mean, if you're gonna love, you're gonna you're gonna feel the other side of that at sometimes. So it's almost I mean, do you love? Of course, you you love a lot, and that's gonna come with the flip side of the coin at some point. But I think that's really one of the beautiful things about life is being able to experience all of that and to be able to do it all sober. Everything that you've been through in those five years. I'm glad to hear that people stepped up and supported you for your celebration there, too. That's incredible. A couple more minutes here before we, we wrap up officially. Your book. Tell us about that for a few minutes.
1: Well, it's called Chasing Shadows, Fighting the Monster Within.
0: Why write a book? I mean...
1: That- I, I never thought I would write a book. And my body's you need to write a book. I'm like, okay, I might write one by my fifth year sobriety. He's like, oh, no, you're going to write it now. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write it. Along the way, I, I've, I was taking notes because I always had it in the back of my mind because I knew I had a little bit of a story. And once I started taking life coaching courses and going into the personal development world, I'm like, well, I, I got all this knowledge. And I want to be able to share it, right? And how do I get it out to the world? And finally, I was like, well, why don't I just write a book about it, right? And so I wrote a book and it's into three different chapters. It's life during alcohol, life after alcohol, and then learning lessons. So at the end of every chapter, it goes more in depth of my growing up. It goes into my junior hockey experience. It goes into like my life after that and then getting sober, getting married. And then after alcohol, the the things that I faced and some of those places I've spoken at and stuff like that, but then the learning lessons on Self-love, making lasting change, finding your why, having a support system, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of every chapter, there's actually a question that you can ask yourself. And it takes you on a journey of maybe making a change or seeing an area in your life that you want to make a change. That you never would have thought before that. I'm, I'm hoping that when people read the book, they're like, okay, well, I'll make this change. And that at the end of it, okay, well, holy, maybe I need to make this change. And it also talks about the human needs of positive psychology. Tony Robbins and how there's uncertainty, comfort and stuff like that. Uncertainty of you want some surprise in your life. There's significance where you want to matter. There's love and connection. You want to feel love. You want to give love. Those uh, are human survival. Those first four are for human survival. And then it talks about growth and contribution are for human fulfillment. Where when you stop growing, you die. And you want a contribution. You want to give more. You want to be able to, you know, give more than yourself to the world. So it goes into that and how everything we do, you know, all our behaviors is, is a way to meet a need. And it's a way to meet a certain need and that if one need or if one thing that you do meets more than four of those needs, well, then it becomes an addiction. And that's what alcohol and drugs did for me. The, it, alcohol and drugs met surgery, gave me comfort. I knew that it was going to give me comfort going to give me release. Uncertainty. It made me get out of my, out of myself. Made me actually leave my house. It gave me significance. I liked to write. I would, I'd make people laugh. It gave me love and connection that I was searching for. I felt one with myself. I felt confident, right? With growth contribution, I don't think I contributed much to the world what I was hammered. And I don't know if I was really growing as an individual, but it met for my needs. And he talks about if it meets for your needs, it can become an addiction. So find different things that meet your needs. And so it talks about all our behavior meets the needs and how sometimes we will meet that need, even if it hurts somebody else.
0: Yeah. Wow. Powerful. Well, thank you, dude, so much for jumping on here and sharing your story. Where can people check you out, give you a follow or send you a message if they want?
1: Well, you can visit my website, www.justinbryan.com. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-R-I-E-N.com, at justinbryan19 on Instagram. Thanks again, brother, for sharing, man. I appreciate you. Thank you very much, buddy.
0: Well, there it is, everyone. Another incredible episode. Thank you, Justin, for jumping on here and sharing your story with all of us. Thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to these stories. We're really giving people an opportunity to share their story with a lot of people and and try to make a difference out there. So it's much appreciated from my end. And I know it is from a lot of the guests as well. If you guys enjoyed or were able to connect with any part of Justin's story, be sure to send him a message over on Instagram. I will drop that link down in the show notes below. What an incredible episode though of ups and downs. And Justin is just an extremely humble human being that I've been lucky enough to connect with and I really enjoyed the story. You always think you know a lot about people until it comes to them sharing their story like this. And let me tell you, an hour flies by, and we just barely scratch the surface on a lot of these stories. But it really paints a bigger picture for what somebody went through and maybe helps explain a little bit about why they landed, where they landed, and for him to be able to pull himself out of all of that and To be giving back and helping others by sharing a story is so amazing. So thank you all, as always, for the support. It's incredible. The podcast is really moving and shaking right now. We're going to be hitting a million downloads here soon. And uh, and when we do that, I will be doing another eight-hour Instagram live with previous guests and friends over on Instagram. I'll be sure to announce that beforehand. So if you want to come and hang out all day, If you want to hang out all day for eight hours, you're welcome. If you want to just pop in and out or just see a specific person, um, I'll post the roster as well once I get all that figured out. But I'll see you guys on the next one.